Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. If you go back and study church history, one of the earliest names that you'll encounter when it comes to early church fathers, early apologists, is a guy named Justin Martyr. He's one of the first apologists that we actually know about. Uh, In case you're wondering, Martyr wasn't his last name. That was actually something that was tagged on later, and it gives you an idea of how things worked out for Justin. He was martyred. He lived in the second century, about the middle of the second century, so A.D. 150s, 160s, and he was a philosopher. He was very much an intellectual young man. He was fascinated from an early age with the life of the mind, and he went through, uh, as Augustine would later, he went through kind of a series of developments, philosophical revelations, as he studied with first one group and then another. Uh, He first became a Stoic, and then he saw the shortcomings of Stoicism, and he became a peripatetic, one of the uh, philosophers who walked around and talked as they did their teaching. He saw the shortcomings there, and then he became a Pythagorean, because those guys knew all about math and numbers and, and all of that, and that was very impressive, and he thought for a long time that Pythagoras was the one who understood all things, but eventually uh, Pythagorean theory left him cold, and he realized it was time to level up to the ultimate philosophy, and he went and he started studying with the Platonists, and it was there studying in the school of Plato that Justin discovered the key to all reality. When he became a Platonist, he said, I expected forthwith to look upon God, for this is the end or the goal of Plato's philosophy. Now he'd reached the summit. Now he was truly doing philosophy. And he walked around, and this is kind of interesting, for for all of his life, dressed as a philosopher. Uh, There was a particular dress that philosophers would wear so that you recognize them on the street. And for his whole life, Justin would dress in the garb of a philosopher. And when you'd come up and talk to him and ask him, teach me some philosophy, he would teach you Christ. But it wasn't always that way. There was a time before his conversion when Plato was everything to him, when Platonism explained the world, when reason alone was his guide. And in one of his written works, the dialogue to Trifo, with Trifo, he explains how he came to be converted. He was a Platonist philosopher wandering around talking about Platonism, and then one day, in a quiet place, he ran into a Christian. And that Christian started asking him questions. He asked him, what is philosophy? Explain philosophy to me. Here's the definition Justin gave. He said, philosophy is the knowledge of that which really exists and a clear perception of the truth, a clear perception of the truth, what really exists, knowing what's real. That's philosophy. Well, how do you know what's real? Well, Justin would explain, as as any Platonist would, you know it through right reason. It is through right reason that we understand all things. And so the Christian asked, well, what does right reason tell us about God, who God is? Justin explained the Platonist view of God. God is that which always maintains the same nature and in the same manner and is the cause of all other things. He had it figured out. But as this Christian began to ask more and more questions, Justin 
found it increasingly difficult to answer. When it comes to how we know God, the Christian asked, uh, what kind of knowledge is that? Do we know about God the same way that we know about math, for example, or how to play the piano? Is it that kind of knowledge? You go to school for it? Justin says, no, it's not exactly like that. It's, it's not. There's a difference in how we know God versus how we study a subject, for example. The Christian says, well, do we know him by seeing him? Do we know him because we see him and are able to learn through direct experience? And Justin says, no, not really. If the philosophers, the Christian says, have never seen God, they've never heard from God, why should we listen to them? Justin says, well, actually, God isn't perceptible by the senses. He is only perceived through the mind. This is the only way we can know God is through the mind. This is what Plato taught, Justin says, and I believe him. He was right. God can only be known by the human mind through reason, like everything else. And then the Christian said this, do you really think it's possible that human beings, as we are, as corrupt as we are, are capable of knowing God without being instructed by the Holy Spirit? Through a series of questions about Justin's Platonist beliefs, eventually the Christian comes to get him to realize that a lot of the things that the Platonists knew by reason must be true about God weren't actually very reasonable. He picks apart their belief in the immortality of the soul and a few other things. And along the way, Justin starts to realize that the knowledge he thought he had wasn't as firm as he imagined it was. And then the Christian says to him, you know, the philosophers have never seen God. They've never heard from God. All they do is speculate about God. But there are people who have seen God. There are people who have heard from God, and their writings exist, and you can study those writings. Those people are the prophets. The prophets. Maybe you should look at what the prophets have to say. You should consider, in other words, the revelation that God has given of himself. So, essentially, this first Christian that Justin speaks to tells him two things. First of all, if you want to know God, you can't know him apart from his revelation of himself. You need that revelation. And then the second thing is you need to be instructed by the Spirit. That your reason alone won't get you there. You need to be instructed by the witness of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's interesting to me what the Christian did not say. If you go back and you read Justin's conversion, a couple of things jump out. As I mentioned earlier, Justin didn't stop being a philosopher. He didn't say, hey, now I'm a Christian. Let me throw away my philosophy clothes. He continued to be a philosopher. And if you asked him, what is your philosophy? He would have told you it's Christ. This is now my philosophy. This is the reality. This is what's truly real. This is the truth. But the Christian didn't come to him and say to him, you need to abandon reason and embrace religion. That's not what happens. Instead, this Christian used reason to show Justin how unreasonable his assumption was that he could know this transcendent God as a finite and fallen man through reason alone. He was able to encourage Justin to continue reasoning, but to start reasoning instead of with a foundation of speculation, to start reasoning from a foundation of revelation, because foundations are what matters. 
Foundations sometimes determine everything that follows. Starting points are essential. What your starting point is, your underlying assumption, or to put it another way, your hope. What your hope is dictates where you go, where you travel, how far you get. A lot depends where you're starting from, where your hope lies. We see as Jesus is speaking to this multitude of followers, through the course of the dialogue, people who were 100% behind Jesus when he was working miracles and feeding them, as they get to know him more, as they're exposed more to his word, that 100% starts shrinking down. Right? People become less and less committed to Jesus once they get to know him. Once they figure out the guy who worked the miracles is also saying some really hard stuff, really hard things. We saw earlier some hard teaching about the necessity of feeding on the flesh and blood of Christ in order to live. Hard things. He's saying to them that no one can come to him unless the Father gives them to him. These are hard sayings. People find these things discouraging. And Jesus, he doesn't mock them exactly, but he does poke them a little bit. He tweaks them a little bit. He's like, wait a second. This is a hard saying for you. If this is hard for you, just wait. If it's hard for you to think that I am the Son of Man come down from heaven, that I am the bread of life, then just wait until I ascend back to the Father. That's going to be hard for you too. If you can't handle the incarnation, the atonement and the resurrection, those are even harder to get your mind around. If you're looking for things to stumble on, Jesus is going to throw plenty of them out there for you. And that stumbling, Jesus doesn't look at it and see it as a failure on his part. He's not like us. If I try to explain to you what this passage is saying and you leave here thinking, well, that was stupid. I don't think I understood any of that. And, and what I did understand, it sounded pretty wrong. If I find out, I'm going to feel bad. I'm going to think I didn't do my job. But Jesus doesn't feel bad. He's not saying, ah, I wish I had explained this better. You know, I, I had the multitude, and they were eating out of the palm of my hand, literally, and I blew it. I shouldn't have gone into that deep stuff. I should have kept it like, like more accessible. That was my bad. No. No, Jesus doesn't see it that way. Right? Instead, he sees their reaction as an illustration of what he'd said earlier when he said that uh, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He's speaking about that, that instruction in the Spirit that's necessary in order to understand, in order to know, in order to believe. Jesus says, this is kind of the, the heart of this first paragraph that we're looking at, Jesus says, it is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. It is the Spirit who gives life, the flesh is no help at all. Now, sometimes when you're reading the words of Jesus, you have to ask yourself, what is it that happened earlier that is prompting this statement? Like, what is this a response to? So if Jesus finds it necessary to say to us that the flesh is no help at all, then it must be that as he's having this conversation, he sees an underlying issue in the objections and the grumbling that has gone on before, and it has to do with the flesh. If Jesus is telling you, hey, your flesh is of no help at all, 
maybe the reason that he's saying it is because you're looking to the flesh for help. But what does that mean, looking to the flesh for help? What sort of help does the flesh give? Like, where would we, we uh, what would we be doing if we were turning to the flesh for help? We saw already in John chapter 1 in an earlier sermon the way John characterizes this sort of reliance upon the flesh. This is John 1, verses 12 and 13, which says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And what he's saying there is where eternal life is concerned, your family heritage is of no help. Where eternal life is concerned, your innate sense of right and wrong is of no help. Your self-discipline, your willpower, even your intellectual gifts are of no help where eternal life is concerned. All of these things are the strength of the flesh. The gifting that you have, the, the faculties that you exercise, the ways in which you're better than other people, the things you do better than they do, are of no help at all. Those things avail you nothing where eternal life is concerned. And the disciples who heard the words of Jesus and turned away inevitably were people whose hope wasn't in the words being spoken by Jesus, whose hope was somewhere else, who were putting hope instead in the flesh, who were taking comfort in the flesh. If you tell yourself that because of your strength, you will be saved, that's taking comfort in the flesh. If your assurance is that you're a good person, that you've lived a good life, that you can think of a lot of people less deserving than you, of eternal life. Your comfort is in the flesh. If in moments of doubt, maybe in the dead of night, when you're not really sure about yourself, if you find comfort by reflecting on the things that you've done, the things that you've gotten right, the, the ways in which you haven't wavered, you're finding comfort in the flesh. These people wanted to eat. They wanted to be fed by Jesus, but they had a certain idea of the kind of diet they should eat. They wanted to be fed the bread of tradition, the bread of inheritance, the bread of personal merit, the bread of congratulations when God looks down and says, well done, well done. These are the, the, the things they wanted, where they wanted to find their comfort. They thought, that if they could just do the right things, they should have life. And as long as Jesus seemed to be talking in those terms, as long as Jesus seemed to be presenting to them sort of a, a, a plan of action, they were interested. They were asking questions. But once it became clear that Jesus wasn't saying, do these things and you will live, it started getting hard. Or if you imagine yourself in Justin's case, Right? Justin, martyr, wasn't looking for the things to do. He was looking for the things to think. If I just think the right way about God, if I have the right ideas about God, then God will be pleased with me. If I think rightly, if I do rightly, then I will be righteous. All of that, as moral as it seems, as, as much of a like, positive aspiration as it seems, all of that is taking comfort in the flesh. And people who do these things, including us, when we look at the flesh, 
our flesh for comfort, it's because we haven't yet discovered the futility of hoping in the flesh. We haven't yet discovered the futility of putting our hope in the flesh. When you hope in the flesh, you may feel a little bit of comfort, but it's a false comfort. The Heidelberg Catechism says, our only comfort is realizing that we're not our own, but instead belong to Christ. The futility of the flesh. In order to hear the words of Jesus, and for them not to be a stumbling block, you had to have given up on finding comfort in the flesh. It's interesting in that regard to look at our passage and see all of these references to Judas. You notice we kind of end on a, a downer, right? This talk about betrayal. We've already had allusions, but now directly Jesus is talking about Judas prophetically. Twice in this passage that we've just read, verses 64 and 65, Jesus says, there are some of you who do not believe. And you can imagine him kind of looking over at Judas. And then in parentheses, John adds these words, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And then at the end, after this rousing confession of faith that, that Peter gives, you know, we believe in you. We know that you are the Holy One of Israel. Jesus doesn't say, awesome, that's great, and with you twelve, I will rebuild my multitude. Jesus instead says something kind of negative, sort of depressing. It's like, yeah, but didn't I choose the twelve of you and one of you is a devil? That must have started interesting conversations around the fire after Jesus was asleep. One of us is a devil, Jesus says. And then in verse 71, our, our last verse, we read, He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Well, what's that all about? Why mention that stuff here? What's the, the point of bringing Judas in and the state of Judas in? It's interesting. Several times in this chapter, John is at great pains to emphasize the omniscience of Jesus. Way back at the beginning in verse 6, when he's asking his disciples how they're going to feed the multitude, remember at a certain point he turns to a disciple and says, hey, what are we going to do? And John jumps in there in parentheses now. He was just testing them. Jesus knew what he was going to do. He was just testing them. And then here you get it again. Jesus says, there's some of you who do not believe. And then we get in parentheses, John saying, oh, you know, he always knew what was going to happen. Why? Why is he emphasizing this? I think one reason he's emphasizing it is John is aware that as he reports on the things Jesus says in the moment, it doesn't always sound like Jesus does know what's going on. It doesn't always sound like Jesus already anticipates. So John is at great pains, essentially, to make this point, that when I was here to begin with, John, who was the first person witness to these events, the first time around when I heard this stuff, I assumed that Jesus, like me, wasn't sure. Jesus had questions about what we should do or what was going to happen in the future. And now, in hindsight, I realize that wasn't so. And so John is telling us, he's giving us the benefit of what he's learned over time. So he wants us to understand that Jesus had a deeper knowledge than even we, his closest intimates, realized he had. And that there were times when Jesus would ask questions and we would assume he just wanted some information, but in fact, he was testing us. 
are times when he might speak with uncertainty about the future, and now I look back and recognize that that uncertainty wasn't what I thought it was. He now has an assurance. He has a deeper knowledge of Christ than he had at the time. In hindsight, John knows better than he did at the time. And I think that's one reason why we see him emphasizing this omniscience. But why emphasize Judas? Why leave on such a downer? Why, what's the point of bringing Judas up? Well, I think it's connected to this idea of the futility of the flesh. Like there's a, there's a reason why Judas is being held up to us as an example. And we're being told again and again, this is the guy who is going to betray Jesus. Not only does it highlight Jesus' foreknowledge of what was going to take place, it also reinforces the idea that salvation is a work of the Spirit. Judas was one of the twelve. Judas was in the inner circle. Judas, as Jesus said, had been handpicked to serve. And yet Judas did not believe. He did not have the faith that leads to eternal life that Jesus had been talking about. He had all of these seeming advantages that you would have expected that this is a guy, if anybody believes, if anybody has eternal life, surely it's going to be the twelve. Surely it's going to be these, these ones who walk day in and day out with Jesus. And yet now we're being told, no, that's not the case. All of the advantages that Judas had, his nearness to Jesus, his, his direct hearing of the words that Jesus spoke, his witnessing of these miracles, none of that availed. The flesh was of no help at all to him. Without faith, without the instruction of the Spirit, it was not enough. Judas ate bread with Jesus. Judas was fed the bread at the Last Supper by the hand of Christ and did not have eternal life. It availed him nothing. It was of no help at all. Without faith. Without faith. The flesh is no help at all. When Jesus turns to the twelve and he asks whether or not they will leave him too, there's a lot of pathos in this moment. Like if you can place yourself in the scene and imagine what this must have been like, for Jesus and for those closest to him, to see what appears to be an overnight sensation, a huge success that Jesus has now completely jeopardized, so that he's now thrown back where he was at the beginning, and now he's having to ask the 12 who you would have thought were most reliable if they're going to abandon him too. Like, there's a moment, I mean, your heart goes out to Jesus. He seems to have lost everything. So that when Peter says, no, we're not going anywhere, your, your heart leaps. You feel like the hope of those words. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That confession of faith is stirring. But don't miss the preface. Don't miss the way Peter begins, the question that he asks, to whom shall we go? Where are we going to go? Where are we going to go, Jesus? We don't have anywhere else to go. Peter speaks like a man who's considered the other options, who's lived enough to have put his hope in other things. He's no stranger to finding comfort in the flesh, to relying on things he shouldn't have relied on for life. 
He speaks like someone who realizes that if he leaves here, there's nowhere else to go. That's the kind of self-knowledge that Peter shows in this moment. He's considered the other options and found them futile. The other people left. The multitudes left because they thought they did have somewhere else to go. They had a better place to go than the feet of Jesus. What they were hearing wasn't what they wanted to hear, and they thought, you know what, there are places I'd rather be right now. They had hope in other destinations, and so they went. Peter's basically saying, yep, I don't have that. I don't have that. As hard as this is, as difficult as it is to understand why you're saying what you're saying, and why you're doing what you're doing, we don't have anywhere else to go. Nowhere left to go but the cross. Remember the very first beatitude, Matthew 5? Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He doesn't say blessed are the strong or the rich or the gifted. Blessed are the knowledgeable. Blessed are the reliable. Blessed are the good. None of that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Because where the kingdom is concerned, what matters isn't what you have to give. What matters is what you've given up on. It matters what you've stopped hoping in. That you come to see that all those other comforts are false. So Peter's speaking here like someone who's poor in spirit. This isn't a boast. We're better than those guys. We're better than those guys. We know you're, you're telling the truth. This is, this is a confession that comes out of a deep knowledge. Jesus is saying something hard, but Peter doesn't have a plan B. Whatever Jesus says, hard or not, he's got to listen because he's got nowhere else to go. It's interesting, too, that Peter speaks of belief. We believe, but he also speaks of knowledge. We've come to know. We've come to know. He's not just saying, Jesus, we used to reason, but now we have religion. We used to use our minds, but now we're going to follow you with our hearts. No. He's speaking of belief, yes, but he's also speaking of knowledge. That he knows something that is leading him to confess his faith. Well, what is it that he knows? Well, he has the things that that first Christian who approached Justin Martyr said you need to have. He has revelation from God coming from Jesus himself, God himself revealing himself. Jesus, the highest of all the prophets, has given his word. But he also is instructed by the Spirit. Instructed by the Spirit so that he can recognize that the words of Jesus Christ are the words of eternal life. Now, as we've gone through John chapter 6, we've seen a lot. There's a lot in this chapter. I'll readily admit that, that as much as we've covered, we've left a lot, as it were, on the table. There's more here than we've ever been able to unpack. But I hope that one of the things that's been clear as we've gone through this is the deep connection between the meals in John chapter 6 and the old covenant meals that went before that stand behind them, the Passover, as the highest example. That John is telling us a story in which the connection between Old Testament and New Testament is being made where the, the Passover covenant meal is now being reenacted 
as a new covenant meal, the, the Lord's Supper that we've talked about before. Uh, Hughes Oliphant Old, who's a great uh, author on Reformed worship, sums up John's understanding of the Lord's Supper like this. He says that through the Lord's Supper, the covenant meal of the new covenant, the Christian is joined to the crucified and risen Christ and therefore has eternal life. What John says here is very similar to what the Apostle said in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11. When we ask how Jesus came to give us his flesh to eat, the answer is that he gives us his flesh by becoming our Passover lamb, the Lamb of God, and offering himself up for us. His death and his resurrection are for us because we have been joined to him in a covenant relationship. What is his is ours, and what is ours is his. Through eating the bread, we share in his broken body. Through drinking the cup, we become partakers in the new covenant. We have been consecrated for the new life of the kingdom of God. And what does that have to do with Peter's confession of faith? Well, the words that we hear Peter speaking as he confesses faith, that's the substance of the confession that we make as we come forward and we partake of the Lord's Supper. We believe in what he believed in. We believe in Christ crucified. A simpler way of saying it is this, when we go to the table, we go to the cross. That for believers, there is no way to come to the table without also coming to the cross. We go to the cross because we have nowhere left to go. We go to the cross because the flesh has proven to be of no help at all. We go to the cross because we're sick of false comfort and because we've believed and we've come to know that Jesus is who he says he is. We go to the cross because no one else has the words of eternal life. It's not that we have a lot of options, but of all the options as we weigh them, the cross seems like the best. We literally have no option but to come to the cross. I told Justin's conversion story, but I didn't finish it. I gave you the conversation, but not the result of the conversation. He had a long philosophical conversation with a Christian who really challenged him to rethink what he thought was reasonable. But then something happens. They parted ways, and, and it's interesting, he, he gives this note that this Christian said, this is, this is really good, I'm glad you're thinking about these things, we will talk again soon, and he never saw him again. But he kept thinking about those things. It, it, they, his doubts gnawed away at him. And then he, he wrote these words, Straightway a flame was kindled in my soul, and a love of the prophets and of those who are friends of Christ possessed me. Moreover, I would wish that all, making a resolution similar to my own, do not keep themselves away from the words of the Savior. If then you have any concern for yourself, and if you are eagerly looking for salvation, and if you believe in God, you may become acquainted with the Christ of God. Like a lot of us, Justin had exhausted his options. It's not that he didn't know anything but Christianity. He tried a lot of different philosophies. He'd found himself traveling a lot of different roads, and none of them had brought him where he thought they would. And so he came to Christ, and he found comfort in Christ, and also the realization that the kind of comfort that his soul longed for, he couldn't find anywhere else. There was no other source. He came to realize what Peter had realized already, 
What Augustine would later realize, what each of us who believe have realized, that we have nowhere else to go but to the cross of Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.